welcome to One of 200, the independent politics and media podcast. I'm joined in the co-host seat by Paul Kelland, our headliner for economics and the environment. And we have Greenpeace agricultural spokesperson, Christine Rose, joining us today as well. Welcome to the cast, Christine. Thanks. Kia ora. Hey, I'm going to hand it immediately over to you, Paul, um, to kind of introduce us to, to what we're talking about today um, and to uh, yeah, get us on track. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Um, well, yeah, w- welcome, Christine. It's great to have you here. Um, yeah, so I guess we're, we're kind of uh, discussing the emissions reduction plan um, discussion document that came out, um, was it last week or the week before now? Mm-hmm. Um, last time week. flies, doesn't it? Last week. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, so it's great to have your expertise on Christine to discuss that. Um, so I guess, firstly, you know, there'll be highlights and lowlights of, of the document, and I'm keen to get your thoughts on that. Um, but are you able to maybe just talk a little bit about the context of this document? So, you know, why has it come out now? What is it, what is it trying to do? Um, you know, I understand it's, it's seeking some feedback on policies and things like that that's going to go into the, the final emissions reduction plan. So it's not actually the plan <laughs> itself, which has caused a bit of confusion. But um, yeah, are you able to sort of give us a bit of context to the document um, and its significance? And then maybe we can talk a bit about what's good in it and what's what's not good or not even there. Thanks. Well, the Emissions Reduction Plan is a document that's in a long series of policy initiatives that are designed to address climate change and and greenhouse gas emissions in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, And ideally, it would be giving effect to the aspirations um, of the government to address climate change and reflect the um, importance of dealing with those emissions, given that it's our nuclear-free moment and um, we're in a climate crisis and it's the defining, uh, one of the defining crises of our generation. Um, Unfortunately, it's not the only crises of our generation. We know about the biodiversity crisis and also um, the fact that we're exceeding the um, planetary limits in a number of areas, including the nitrogen cycle. So those key planetary limits that we've already exceeded are the biodiversity, um, limits, um, the climate limit and the nitrogen limit. And all these things are really clearly linked and they come together in New Zealand, particularly in our agricultural sector, uh, which is not mentioned much in the emissions reduction plan. Um, but the emissions reduction plan follows on from, you know, the, uh, I, I guess, say the aspirations, um, some might say the hot air and the hyperbole that's come from the government about the need to respond to climate change. And uh, so we had the Climate Change Commission that did a whole lot of research looking into the causes of climate change um, generated within New Zealand, but which had their effects around the globe. Um, And uh, that came up with a whole lot of recommendations. And then from the Climate Change Commission's recommendations come the Emissions Reduction Plan and also the need to define our nationally determined targets about how we're going to address climate change. And so this discussion document is out there to try and elicit feedback from the community to uh, see whether the um, focus is right and whether the targets are right, whether we're heading in the right direction. But unfortunately, it is a process that we all sort of feel a bit fatigued about um, consultation over climate change. On the one hand, people had great aspirations or expectations from the Zero Carbon Act. 
and thought it might deliver on those governmental and um, party political aspirations to, to deal with climate change. Um, and we might have thought that we would have something tangible to come out of the Zero Carbon Act and the Climate Change Commission. Um, but unfortunately, the, the final emissions reduction plan has been delayed for several months, five months. Um, so it doesn't really feel like it's being dealt with in the timely manner that's required, given the fact that it is a crisis and that we've seen it unfolding over a period of time. And actually the best time to respond to it was um, you know, probably years ago, um, while the problems were being created, and yet we're just sort of kicking the can down the road. So the emissions reduction plan, really a discussion document, um, and the plan itself, this process uh, adds to the fatigue that we're all feeling about being consulted, but not really being listened to, and the failure of government agencies to really engage with the issues in a timely manner um, and, and really to engage with the issues at hand at all. Yeah, yeah, thank, thanks for that. It's a really good good rundown. And yeah, it um, definitely feels like, you know, we've had um, uh, this government and, you know, Labour-led government under Jacinda Ardern for four years now. And there's been a lot of, a lot of plans and strategies and targets and things, but not actually those kind of things to reduce emissions. And I guess, you know, that's that's what the plan's for. But like you say, um, it's been a long time now and we're all quite fatigued by it. So I'm just wondering specifically in the document, um, you mentioned agriculture. That's obviously your you know, area of expertise in this. So we could go into a bit of detail there perhaps, but maybe before we get all down in the dumps about that, is there anything good in the document? I saw some feedback about um, some of the transport um, initiatives. Uh, it was a bit heavier on transport. Is there any anything sort of worthwhile there that we can um, get from it? The proof will be in the pudding. I think uh, commentators were more positive about the transport um, section than anything else that's in there. It's quite good, the document, at identifying the problems. Um, and so there are problems with our transport uh, model. Uh, that um, benefits private the private car. Um, you know, it identifies problems with uh, green waste, and given that a huge amount of organic matter goes to landfill, um, so that's a resource um, that should be diverted from landfill, it shouldn't be produced to start with, um, but it also releases a whole lot of greenhouse gas emissions, so it acknowledges that. Um, it acknowledges a number of the climate change causing problems in today's society, but it's not quite so good at providing solutions that we can be confident with. And so even though the transport area isn't my area of expertise, I've had um, quite a bit of experience previously um, in other roles dealing with transport um, and including uh, being the chair of the Auckland Regional Council Transport Committee. Um, and so we had the job of developing the Regional Land Transport Plan, um, which you know, established a transport hierarchy, so that should prioritise walking and cycling first, um, travel demand management, freight access, and then right down the bottom of the hierarchy should be the private vehicle. Uh, but, you know, 10 years since we developed that plan and it was put on a shelf and um, still our modern urban form and the continuation of that form prioritises single occupancy vehicle and um, all the problems of uh, roads and road building um, that is still being expressed today. 
So uh, while it said some good things about transport, um, the proof is in the pudding and um, there's a real risk that says one thing, does another, and it's going to be funding that makes the difference. And at the moment, we haven't got funding for walking and cycling that would give effect to the priority that it deserves in terms of mobility, equity, and addressing climate change. So, uh, yeah, some, some good words in there, but it remains to be seen uh, whether they translate into an inversion of the normal budget priority in, in the government's budget um, in May next year. Negative engagement strategies, I, I think it's probably the best way to, to phrase it, has become a real mainstay of national and uh, global governance in a lot of these environmental spaces, right? You like, have uh, global meetings, have national meetings, consultation, consultation for decades and decades now. And it always feels like, you know, we're about to turn a corner um, or at least it's pitched that way. Uh, and then, as you say, uh, oh, another road to kick the can down first. Um, how has that been? How's that model from from governments and from decision makers been so successful at pushing out climate change action? Yes, we always live in hope that the next government is going to deliver on their promises. And um, we get that, you know, there's a lot of faith in the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern that she will deliver because she says the right things. You know, we've had a, a Green Party in coalition for the first time in the last electoral term. Um, and so things, we're looking hopeful and people want hope. We, we deserve hope and we need hope. Um, but, uh, you know, pushing it to some future and delaying action is no substitute. Um, it's not an adequate response. And so a lot of people, I think, either keep believing and keep wanting to believe, even in spite of the evidence. Um, I think that some people just turn right off and don't want to engage because it actually feeling hopeless um, in the face of hopelessness <laughs> um, is a pretty awful scenario and so one response is you know just to keep sane and not engage and um, another response is to keep fighting and uh, so we do keep fighting um, but meanwhile our climate change minister James Shaw is heading off to um, the COP26 talks in Glasgow Glasgow see see what I did there <laughs> um, I've got a Scottish friend um, and um, so, you know, we, we keep hoping, I guess, that these multinational and multilateral talks will deliver something more because it's a framework that's in place to um, address these issues. Um, but I think people are increasingly cynical and increasingly despondent. And um, I think it's all the more important that organisations like Greenpeace and others within civil society uh, keep holding them to account, um, keep exposing um, opportunities for change and keep hope alive mm. yeah for sure um yeah a lot of interesting stuff in there i guess about you know uh um the, the sort of delaying tactics and, and things like that that seem to creep into a lot of these a lot of these processes and obviously um you know you mentioned earlier that the that the document doesn't have a lot of stuff in it about agriculture and we know that agriculture is a massive part of our our economy it's very powerful um, sector um, with a lot of sort of lobbying clout and things like that so maybe that's maybe those things are related um, but I just wonder if you can talk about 
you know the gaps in the document around agriculture and what needs what you feel needs to be there and what Greenpeace are pushing for? Yes, well, there's a huge gap when it comes to agriculture, not just in the emissions reduction plan, but in um, other instruments that should be dealing with the environmental effects of um, agriculture and agricultural expansion in New Zealand. So, um, you know, it, it's not normal, although it has been normalised um, that, you know, we have hugely intense stocking densities on New Zealand farms, and it wasn't the model previously. And um, it is still portrayed that, you know, it's this rustic nirvana where, you know, the farmer knows every cow by name and they live this good life. It's not like that. And uh, animals suffer, uh, rivers suffer, the planet is suffering. And, and farmers, uh, you know, farmers suffer too because it's a really unsustainable model. And in New Zealand, the agricultural expansion um, has been rapid since the 1990s where we've seen um, the national dairy herd, let me, I've got notes, actually, I can tell you, um, the national dairy herd has grown since the 1990s um, from um, 3.4 million cows, which is still quite a few, uh, more, we had more, more cows than people back then, even, um, to 6.3 million cows, so almost a doubling of the dairy herd since then, and in some particular areas that cannot cannot accommodate this um, expansion and intensification, it's grown even more. So in Southland, um, the dairy herd's grown from 38,000 cows to 636,000 cows since the 1990s. And in Canterbury, the herd has grown from 113,000 cows to 1.2 million cows. Wow. And that has, that, that's, that's a huge increase, eh? And so, of course, that's why when you go to the Waikato and to Canterbury and Southland, you know, and Taranaki, these um, what have become core dairy areas, um, you, you know, you, it's just wall-to-wall -wall cows and in winter, wall-to-wall -wall mud. And it's more than the land can sustain, um, which is why we are also reliant on huge volumes of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, which is, uh, which is both imported and produced here in New Zealand and also imported supplementary feeds such as palm kernel expeller, which is a byproduct from rainforest destruction in Southeast Asia. And, and if it and weren't... Christine, so, sorry, sorry to jump sorry. in. <laughs> These are the things, I guess I'm just thinking about our um, our, our listeners uh, for, you know, the, the nitrogen fertilizer and the PKE. These are all things that help um, support the herd, right? So they make the grass grow faster or they, you know, they're sup you know like you say, supplementary feeds. Um, and things like that to help sustain the kind of stock levels um, that That's are on right. the farms that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. we, we advertise ourselves as, you know, grass-fed and pasture-grown cows, but actually these cows are wallowing in mud because they um, there are too many cows, the stocking density is too high, um, the grass can't grow over large periods of winter um, when these stocking numbers are so high and when the cows have, you know, high... Um, energy needs just to keep warm and also because they're going to have calves and so our um, dairy sector is heavily reliant on the importation of um, uh, of palm kernel um, for a start we're the world's largest importer of palm kernel extract um, and and so that is used as a supplementary feed but also soy from South America so from Amazonian rainforest um, conversion 
And then the fertilizer, it used to be that, you know, we would grow grass and the fertilizer um, that would help that grass grow grew naturally from nitrogen fixing plants like clover. Um, but that couldn't keep up with the number of cows. And um, some of the cow density, for example, with intensive winter grazing, or should we say industrial winter grazing, these cows are, you know, two per square meter because they're fenced in the front and fenced in the back. And so often in those cases, they're being fed on winter fodder crops, so beet and kale and things like that. Um, but you could not grow the grass and you could not grow the winter crops um, if you didn't have these high inputs of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. And um, sometimes, you know, previously it was up to 400 kilos of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer per hectare. So through the work of um, Greenpeace in particular, that uh, then is now uh, coming into play a cap on the amount of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer that you can put on a hectare. And the cap is 190 kilos per hectare. That is still a lot of fertilizer. So um, unfortunately, what happens, of course, is that a lot of it runs off and pollutes our rivers and streams. And so commensurate with that growth in cow numbers and the growth in synthetic nitrogen fertilizer numbers, we're seeing um, so many of our rivers and lakes now uh, just totally poisoned. So nothing can live in them. You, you can't swim in them. Don't let your dog drink the water because your dog will die. And um, this is a really rapid increase in toxicity in our fresh water. It's not fresh anymore. It's filled with algae um, because of direct synthetic fertilizer runoff. But also what's happening is um, the synthetic nitrogen fertilizer on the ground, it binds with microbes and the microbes release um, nitrous oxide. So that pollutes the atmosphere and it sustains more cows. And the cows, when they do poos and wheeze, um, that's a major source of nitrous oxide as well. And so, you know, we've got this perfect storm of contaminants of um, the air, so climate emissions of our water, and um, also it's getting into our drinking water supplies. And um, so we've established through community-based testing around the South Island um, that people's drinking water is exceeding the healthy limit for nitrate contamination. So that exceeds World Health Organization limits for um, what's you know what's safe for to avoid blue baby syndrome um, it's also it also exceeds limits for premature births and colorectal cancer and we've got one of the highest colorectal cancer rates in the world and so these people living in rural Canterbury and rural Southland rural Waikato are drinking water that's contaminated with nitrate uh, nitrate contamination and um, exceeding you know all the public health guidelines so it's making the rivers sick the river animals so sick that they can't survive there. It's making the land sick. It's really bad for cows and it's really bad for people and mm. it's really bad for the climate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, th I think that's, that's all super interesting stuff and it might feel like a little bit of a, of a science class, um, perhaps for some of our listeners, but I, I think it's really important that, you know, um, we don't just sort of leave this up to the, the technical experts and scientists to understand and and you know so i um yeah really appreciate the work that you and others at greenpeace are doing to you know help help us all learn about this you know and some of the technical stuff around it um i, I guess in in terms of uh 
you know where we go from here so there's there's um the synthetic nitrogen um you know it's it's doing really bad things for the environment and and there's other things as well but i know that will focus a lot on synthetic nitrogen fertilizer uh, and you mentioned that um uh, greenpeace's campaigning work and and others as well has helped bring in that cap although it's still too high so you know we've we've got ourselves into a bit of a bind here haven't we with our economic kind of dependence on agriculture you know we export a lot of um, dairy and and beef and our economy depends on it uh, and and like you say there's this sort of economic model that's you know sprung up from that and from this expansion of the dairy herd uh, and farmers also suffer from that like you said it's creating this dependency sort of cycle i guess how, how do we i mean it's the million dollar question i know but how do we get ourselves out of this what are we a $40 billion question, isn't it? Is, is, <laughs> yeah. Didn't that just come out the other week? Is like farmers are $40 billion in debt based on trying That's to... Right. There was an article the other day, wasn't there? Maintain that cycle. It's just obscene. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, and, yeah I guess what do we do yeah. about it? Yeah. Well, it is a good question because there's evidence that shows um, around the world that most of the profits go to the finance companies and the fertilizer companies rather than to the farmers. And so the farmers are caught in this vicious cycle. And um, there are solutions, you know, this is not a permanent state and the Climate Change Commission recommended that we needed to um, reduce the dairy herd if we were to do anything about addressing climate change related to agricultural emissions. Um, and uh, so that's, that's something, you know, that we need to grapple with, what that looks like, you know, um, it's, it's really just not breeding so many replacement cows. But of course, there are already 2 million bobby calves a year that get killed within four days of age because we're breeding too many cows. So, um, you know, this is a really sick system. But interestingly, the Climate Change Commission um, did pull together a report that looked at the benefits of eliminating synthetic nitrogen fertilizer from New Zealand's dairy farms. It was hidden, it wasn't, um, and you wouldn't have seen it in any of the recommendations that came out from the Climate Change Commission. And um, through our work, we got a, a, a copy of this report and um, made it public. And um, it showed that there were economic and emissions benefits from uh, eliminating synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. And so research around the country shows that the farm model can be perfectly viable. In fact, there can be a premium on, uh, on products um, that use a regenerative and organic um, framework. And um, so regenerative organic agriculture is kinder to the planet because uh, it doesn't rely on these noxious inputs um, it's kind of on cows because not so many of them and you know it's quite it's quite a good economic model because people want to know you know discerning consumers want to know that their products are made in a socially and environmentally responsible way and so there is uh, economic viability in a transition to regenerative organic agriculture but again that will take some leadership and, and some policy um, direction, which was missing from the Climate Change Commission's recommendation. And that emission has been carried forward into the emissions reduction plan. And partly it's because uh, the agriculture, agriculture sector has been um, given an opt-out from the emissions trading scheme at the moment, and they are developing their own framework, Hiwaka uh, Ekanoa, uh, we're all in it together, but we're not all in it together because they're not in it at all. <laughs> um, and so in the emissions trading, uh, oh, sorry, in the emissions reduction plan, 
uh, despite all those pages, you know, there were only a few mentions of agriculture. It was really scant and it talked about um, working with farmers and, you know, digital connectivity um, and techno fixes as if we can keep doing what we're doing. But, you know, technology will be the night shining armor that comes on and saves us from ourselves. Um, but there is a solution and um, progressive farmers around the country are showing the benefits of regenerative organic farming as a way that New Zealand can lead the world and we can address all the pathologies that are related to intensive industrial agriculture. Who even are the agriculture lobby at this point? Because I'm seeing more and more progressive farmers, as you call them, who are, who are trying to transition, who are, who are doing everything they can to, you know, make their farming practices better for the planet. Um, is, it, is it just the Fonterras? Um, is, it, is it finance companies who are like the ones driving this? Or yeah, wh where is that coming from? And why do they have so much uh, apparent weight to their ability in, in removing stuff from the ERP? Well, power works in many ways, doesn't, doesn't it? You know, um, it, it can sometimes be an invisible force. Certainly it's not visible to us because we're not present at those meetings, but um, Federated Farmers, Gary NZ, Fonterra, um, yeah, inevitably probably the financial institutions. Um, and often uh, there are links between the people who have got vested interests in the fertiliser companies, the irrigation companies, the farming companies, who are in elected positions and not necessarily in this instance, um, if, for example, in the Labour government, um, but certainly on local, uh, you know, district and regional councils. And um, it's a really interesting little exercise if you look at the conflict of interest disclosures for local and regional councils and find how many of them do have shareholdings in fertiliser farming or irrigation companies. But um, also, I think there's this latent power of the agricultural sector where, um, you know, we, we see, uh, so for example, the, the vocal and vociferous expressions of frustration from groundswell and their howls of protest. But actually, a lot of decisions are made not because of that, but because of the way power works when, you know, the feds and the others are sitting in, um, in rooms in government, house or, or parliament, whatever, talking to MPs directly. And, um, and so it's no coincidence that um, Damien O'Connor, one of the more conservative uh, ministers in this government at the moment is off, you know, selling our agricultural commodities to the world as if we're grass fed and we're clean and green. And yet it's James Shaw that's getting the flack for traveling to Glasgow to try and negotiate, you know, a stronger position for New Zealand. Uh, but but actually the focus should probably be on Damien O'Connor. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really insightful. And I, I just want to come back to um, some of the stuff uh, that you were saying, you know, about the, the, the sort of power involved in this and the, and the kind of, uh, you mentioned earlier that there was that, uh, that sort of hidden report that um, Greenpeace had kind of uncovered and there's, and there's all this kind of lobbying that goes on. And, you know, you talked about um, Hewaka Ekenoa and the, you know, the ability, I guess, of the agricultural sector to sort of come in and um, be able to, you know, devise their own plan as to how they're going to, you know, regulate emissions or, or price emissions. Um, and you talked about the emissions trading scheme too, which I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I'm really interested in. But so, so with that, what are the prospects, I guess, for uh, that, that plan? So I understand that 
you know, next year, uh, there's going to be reports back from the Climate Change Commission to the government as to the progress of Hawaka Ikenoa. And then, you know, there's supposed to be, um, by 2025, a, a price on agricultural emissions at the farm level. Um, what, what, are the, what are the prospects for achieving that? And, and, and I know that the, uh, the discussion document, the emissions reduction plan discussion documents, there's so many documents, isn't there? Um, <laughs> but that, that one talked about uh, the fact that, you know, we've got this 10% methane reduction target, right, for 2030. And, and it talks about that the projections are that we're going to uh, reduce by 6.5% um, by 2030 um, for methane. So that's not 10%. And they're, they're, they're relying on this pricing mechanism really working, aren't they? So, you know, we, we're kind of cutting it fine. Well, what's your what's your assessment of all that? I'm quite cynical about economic <laughs> instruments to start with. I'm quite cynical all around, but... Um, Yeah, um, you know, the whole sort of license to pollute um, by pricing um, pollution uh, is a faulty model to start with, I think, because we've seen with um, the ETS as it's working already and the ability to um, offset and buy carbon credits and all that sort of stuff, you know, people people just name their price and then pass it on to consumer, the consumer. So um, it's not a system that I think is proving itself already. Um, and in terms of the agricultural sector's um, uh, capacity, will or um, likelihood of delivering uh, what it needs to, um, I think um, that it's likely to be minimum viable product. And um, Rod Oram, the economics commentator, um, has talked about even the government, the government's response to climate change is a minimum viable product. You know, it's enough to make it look like it's doing something, but not enough to really be doing something. And um, I think that Hiwaka Ikenoa is likely to achieve the same little, um, so not much, um, because, you know, they've got, they've got quite clear guidelines about what they have to deliver. So 25% of farms have to know what they're emitting by March next year. Um, and then subsequently, there has to be a certain number who um, are, you know, sort of managing that, tracking it, delivering. Um, but, you know, so, and, and if they don't meet those targets, then they will maybe be pulled uh, formally back into the emissions trading scheme. Um, so there's a strong incentive for them to go through the processes, um, at least on a minimal level. Uh, and I mean, they already have to, they're already only accountable at a minimum level. So strong incentive for them to, you know, do the minimum that's required, uh, which is not going to be enough. Um, But even then, I think that it's going to be a hard ask. And then we also have to have confidence in the tools that are being used to to measure all of that. And so uh, even today in the media, there was talk about the overseer um, farm nutrient management tool um, to measure uh, agricultural emissions, but it's proven been proven this year that it's a failure for measuring nutrients uh, running off farms, which is what it was deliver- uh, designed for. So I'm not confident that it's going to be a tool that's capable of measuring and delivering reductions on greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, we've got, it's like a house of cards. All this stuff is sort of contingent on compliance and measuring and, and tools and 
and yet um, you know none of those things have delivered to date and and already what it is aspiring to deliver on is unambitious and won't get us out of this mess so you know we we need to be much more ambitious and actually sometimes we just need to call the hard shots and as yet there hasn't been a government that's been prepared to do that yeah I, I want to explore a little bit that there's obviously this massive inertia right so we've we've got the agricultural lobby they're they're lobbying for sort of you know we've got the ets it's it's there it's purportedly supposed to encourage behavioral change but you know like you say it's not really being very effective and then so even if agriculture got brought into the ets and, and had to you know pay for its emissions um then it's questionable as to whether that would uh change very much um but but let's let's say that um you know the the Hawaka Ekanoa framework was making good progress and uh, farmers were able to report on their emissions. Um, I mean, does that, I, I just want to come back to some of the stuff you were talking about earlier in terms of the um, the, the finance companies and the uh, the agri chemical companies and those, those kind of larger ones being really uh, profiting from this whole exercise, you know, and, and the, the actual farmers, the people that are producing the, the goods here that we're exporting or we're consuming ourselves they're the ones that are also, you know, sort of drowning in debt and, 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 it's, and it's getting more and more difficult for them. So if, if we're putting the responsibility back on them to price and, and uh, reduce their emissions, does that make it harder? I mean, you know, the, the um, emissions trading scheme initially when agriculture was proposed to come in, it was companies like Frontera were supposed to be the ones that were responsible for you know, purchasing the the units and and so on. So I, I just want to see if you can talk a little bit about the impact on farmers and whether that's kind of whether that's fair or do we really need to kind of go after the you know those larger companies that are making lots of money from this? Yeah, one of the concerns that is expressed by farmers, for example, in the howl of protest, is that um, the compliance burden is too onerous for them, and um, it's certainly you know they are out there trying to farm. And I mean, farming is not easy, you know, it's, it's out there in the environment, um, you know, you've got animals to contend with. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I, I, I have sympathy with that position. And um, that's why it's more appropriate and more efficient and more equitable that producers and processors at that input level are those who should be accountable. And so we've argued that, for example, when it comes to fertilizer uh, reporting, that the fertilizer companies, they know who they're selling fertilizer to, they know how much and when, and you would imagine that they've got systems in place to track that. I mean, this stuff is like a bomb. It's like a bomb for the planet. And, you know, that's what bombs are made out of, this ammonium nitrate. So, you know, you would hope that they're pretty stringent um, you know, controls and record keeping about where it goes. If there's not, then <laughs> that's a worry. I I'm sure there are. Um, and so it's totally appropriate that um, at that level, that's where accountability and reporting occurs. And the government um, ministry for the environment, for example, have been reluctant to take that on board. Um, so the Environmental Defence Society and Greenpeace provided some draft legislation um, to EMFE suggesting that, you know, if you're finding it too difficult to, you know, develop this legislation, well, here are some draft regulations, you know, take these. Um, and, 
they are still saying that it would take at least a year for it to make its way through the agenda, through the parliamentary process to um, become something that the pro processes could use. But um, it's a really obvious way of alleviating the compliance burden and also the compliance risks um, of uncertainty and dis, um, disparities and, um, you know, it, sort of just a lack of information um, and, and all that extra responsibility for farmers, put it back where the issues are most concentrated and where there is capacity to respond to and address these issues. And that's at producer and processor level at the input stage. The success of Fonterra, um, Fonterra's branding as a farmer's collective um, to devolve that responsibility just can't be understated either, can it? Um, yeah, it's because, very convenient, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, oh, no, your farmers. Yeah, they can do it. Uh, yeah, that's that's all. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. It's um, it's it's really kind of ironic how they're they're the ones with the clout that have been able to lobby the government to um, you know, and 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 they sort of present the uh this kind of image that the politicians and all this regulation is is anti-farmer, um, and then, and then they're the ones that are actually putting the responsibility, like you say, back on them. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I want to I want to ask you a question about the sort of the politics, the kind of high level politics of all this. You know, we've been uh, going into a lot of the detail here. So um, you mentioned earlier on James Shaw, our climate change minister, he's going over to the COP26 summit at the moment. Um, you know, to to try and sort of um, push our you know position on climate and and you know to to the world and negotiate with other leaders and so on. You know, we've had we've had four years of him as climate change minister now and and this labor-led government with the greens um what's you know if, if we get five ten years down the track and we're not hitting these targets they're the ones that are going to be blamed for this um what, what's your sort of assessment of his performance as climate change minister over that time and you know i mean how, how do we how do we sort of actually you know, pull up the handbrake on this politically? And, and you know, do you, do you think that they need to be doing something different to, you know, really kind of change the change the game on this? They definitely need to be doing something different. Um, it's not good enough just to go to Glasgow or, or even Zoom to the world and say that, um, you know, everybody needs to do more, but we're okay. And, and we get a lot of that from our government, uh, you know, remove subsidies elsewhere. Meanwhile, we're subsidising dairying. Um, so it's an inconsistent position. Um, uh, I mean, I have some sympathy uh, with James Shaw. You know, he's not even in cabinet, you know, so it's really like a, a token position, I think. He, he doesn't have a lot of power. Um, he... Um, you know, there's limit, limits to what he can do and, and there's probably limits to what the Prime Minister can do for all her good intentions um, because she's one in the Cabinet as influential as you would assume she is. Um, so I don't doubt their intentions, but it's their delivery that is lacking. And, um, and no wonder um, Greta just, she was like, blah, 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 you know, <laughs> it's just more blah, blah, blah. So, you know, that is quite frustrating. And, um, yeah, they, they need to do more, but it's a whole-of-government response um, and not, not just those politicians that are sitting inside Cabinet and outside Cabinet, but also, um, you know, leaders across, across the government and across 
um, local government and and across civil society. And um, it, it's hard, you know, it, we expect more of our leaders, but actually mm. we, we need to keep at them and we need to hold them to account and we need to keep them honest. And, and also, um, if it comes down to that, um, our own behaviour, you know, um, if, if we don't want climate change, then actually we need to be prepared to ride our bike more. If we don't want climate change, then we need to be prepared to not drink milk from industrial dairy farms or eat cheese or eat meat. Um, you know, the, we're part of the system and so we are relatively powerless and it's the system that needs to change. Um, but, you know, I don't want to be part of that. And, you know, so, no, I ride my bike. And I don't eat and I don't drink that stuff, you know. But, <laughs> um, but you know, we are living in a society where a lot of our choices are dictated to us and, you know, it's all marketed. And, and mm. so, actually, those guys need to show leadership and they're not doing it fast enough or clearly enough. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really good points. And, and yeah, I guess, you know, um, you're, you're right to say that, you know, we can't just look at politicians to be leaders and, you know, there's many other forms of leadership across society and, um, you know, groups like yourselves and others campaigning for change and, you know, when the, the noises get loud enough, you know, they do respond or, or you sort of drag them kicking and screaming to, to respond to these issues. Um, and, and also, like you say, you know, individual sort of behaviour can have an impact, um, but, you know, like you also point out, it's, it's part of the part of the system, right? In terms of, um, you know, the marketing and the profiting from uh, from these products, and so you know, we can't sort of just rely on on that either. Um, but but I guess just looking ahead, you know, we've we've talked a lot about the detail, and it's it's sometimes it's not really a rosy picture. Um, New Zealand's a small country in in the world, uh, and you know, this is such a global issue. Um, do, do you do you feel hopeful for there being actually a sort of a bit of a point of reckoning you know we've had some of these uh global events like i remember you know there was the um horrible uh fires in the in the amazon and in in australia as well uh, you know not so um well, it seems like a long time ago now before um before covid 19 and everything but it wasn't actually that long ago do, do you think some of these issues are going to really you know change the momentum on this in terms of in particular those kind of big global players well it's quite hard to um feel hopeful on a day-to-day -day basis <laughs> um but that is because we forget how much progress we've made mm -hmm. and um you know when you think that climate change wasn't on the agenda um you know perhaps even five years ago the way it is now um, certainly not 10 years ago. And similarly with, um, you know, the biodiversity crisis and the nitrogen cycle exceeding the planetary limits and those sort of things. Um, so, uh, gosh, you know, it, it's, um, it, it can be really overwhelming, um, mm. even for optimists and people who are um, theoretically agents of change, you know, like, like us. Um, but... Um, you know, hope is a resilient feature of the human condition and, um, and we can't give up and, and we mustn't. Um, and that's not, that's not being blind to the realities. Um, you know, courage is being aware of those realities and doing what's right anyway. And, um, and using both the tools that society 
and institutions give us. So, you know, these interminable policy processes and all that consultation, which, you know, feels like you're banging your head against a brick wall, but also um, finding other ways to, to express power. And, um, you know, governments around the world are followers. They're not leaders. It's not very often that you get um, a politician who's truly courageous and will stand up and do what's right um, ahead of time. Um, and, you know, that might be a cynical view too, but that, that's my um, analysis. Of that's just situation. an evidential view. I'm not sure that's cynical <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's realism, eh? Real politics. And so um, I think that um, we need to give governments, um, but all through, you know, leaders throughout society and so in bureaucracy and the like, um, the social license to do what's right um, by speaking truth to power. And, um, you know, that, that requires uh, some forceful pacifism. So with Greenpeace, it's nonviolent direct action, um, but also using the evidence and using supporter, you know, agglomerating supporter voices um, to put these things on the agenda to um, get a, a common um, acceptance and acknowledgement of these pressing issues of our time and to change um, the license that the government has, the social license, um, to do what's right. And, you know, they're always going to be behind the ball, I think, um, but best that they get to the ball. Um, and, um, yeah, we, we just need to keep on going because our, our lives and the future of the planet depend on it. I think that's one of the things which I'm, which is becoming clearer and clearer in, in a whole range of issues over the last maybe five or six years, is the extensive public support for some of these issues. Um, so, you know, pushing 70 or 80 percent. Um, and I'm thinking of things in terms of like inequality. Um, I think climate change is in there as well, maybe not quite as uh, visible. Um, what's another? Oh, healthcare. Um, and it is only uh, parliamentary leadership that is holding us back in a lot of uh, specific issues and specific policies and it really does feel like we are getting closer and closer to meeting that tipping point and, and getting them to the ball as you say yeah and sometimes it's possibly generation change um and and you know the signs of this stuff um seems a bit slow but but like you say you know there, there can be a tipping point and so we're really encouraged by the fact that um now there seems to be a common understanding of the impact of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer in driving um, dairy intensification and all the problems related to that, but also just water quality decline and things like that. And then also social justice issues. Um, and also um, the need for regenerative organic agriculture, but also um, you know, a moral basis uh, to inform what we eat. And so people around the world are becoming much more discerning about um, the provenance of their food. And um, you might say that that's a middle-class position. You know, it's a privilege that allows us to say, oh yeah, I'm gonna eat organic food rather than, um, you know, McDonald's. Um, but even McDonald's are embracing regenerative um, agriculture to a degree, you know, and you might say again, that, that's greenwashing and, and so there's some cynicism in, in that. But if McDonald's are seeing that uh, it's a premium that they have to embrace, then, you know, and they're not known for their, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I guess likewise as well, you know, McDonald's are, um, you know, potentially greenwashing because they see this as a as a powerful brand. And then Jacinda Ardern is doing the same by saying it's a nuclear moment. Um, so without, you know, again, it's if we're being cynical and no, it's not even cynical. You know, they, they haven't taken action on it since she said that, but she saw it as something that would get her votes. Um, or and that was a, an important thing to say. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I don't think we have been at that point uh, electorally um, I, until that moment. Yeah. And, and just to jump in there as well, I think that, you know, um, the, uh, the few occasions where uh, this government has um, delivered some policies which are actually going to, you know, reduce emissions and, and um, bring some change on this issue, like you talked about earlier, Christine, around uh, the the cap, although too high on um, nitrogen fertilizer, but also the offshore oil and gas ban. Those mm-hmm. things are the consequences of, you know, they're not just things that the government woke up one day and decided to be good <laughs> ideas. You know, um, they're the, they're the consequences of long uh, and hard fought campaigns. So um, I think you're quite right to, um, yeah, you know, put point to those and uh, you know as as the kind of the real sort of seeds of change. Um, and the government really sort of just following uh, and w- when the pressure gets too high. It just, I guess, it seems a little bit frustrating when, um, you know, they, they and, and especially with an issue like climate where, you know, the clock is really ticking um, and, you know, there's, there's you know, we were talking about, um, I guess, positive, you know, political tipping points before, but there's these climate tipping points, you know, where if, if we get too far, it's going to be too late. Um, so, so, yeah, I really hope for all of our sake um, that you're, <laughs> you're right about the uh, you know us sort of forcing that change from them yeah and and I think nature is resilient um, you know I mean it's it's really tragic even today I was reading a report about the links between um, illegal uh, deforestation and palm oil plantations in Indonesia and um, New Zealand's role in taking that byproduct and feeding it to our cows Mm. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's desperate and it's tragic and not just for the species and, you know, the ecosystems, but for every orangutan and every Sumatran tiger and every Sumatran elephant. And for those people, the people of the forest who yeah. were there before mm. capitalism. And yeah, um, so, you know, this, it, it's desperate, um, but, but people and systems are resilient and we we just need to take that pressure off and it won't come a moment too soon. How do you think we get, um, you know, we've talked about farmers a, a few times throughout this and, and how, you know, a lot of responsibility is being put on them as individuals when in fact they are they're trapped in the system either by the, the economic realities um, or by the larger business imperatives. How do you think we get them uh, further on side? How, how do you think we get them to join this chorus on mass, um, as opposed to just uh, the the smaller numbers of progressive farmers that are starting to starting to pop up. Um, it'll be partly economics, you know. So if farmers see that there are higher returns um, for you know, regenerative organic agriculture, then that'll be a strong incentive. Peer to peer information and skill transfer is going to be really important, and so Greenpeace Aotearoa have been working with. Um, some of the leading regenerative farmers and helping to share some of those skills. Um, and um, some of it will come 
through hard processes. So, you know, you saw during, well, we didn't see it, but um, history tells us that during the Depression in the American Midwest that people just walked off their farms because they were no longer viable. Um, I mean, that's, a, that's not something that we want to see. But um, at the moment, 98% of the advice that farmers get uh, is from the fertiliser companies. So, you know, we need to find alternative ways of sharing knowledge and different ways of working with the land. Um, and so, you know, that's capacity building. And, um, you know, capacity building is really important around the world in terms of, you know, allowing transitions to new, better ways of doing things. And so, you know, we're, we're investing quite a bit in that and um, uh, appreciate the relationships that we have with those regenerative organic farmers and the broader sector to help socialize that intelligence you know and and this new model um across the sector but then you know people are still quite wary of greenpeace and um you know so you know traditional farmers are not they don't sort of look at us for advice um but but they can look at their other peers for advice and so um those are really important relationships and then of course you know the economics um is often a, a really important incentive for people yeah paul you've talked about this uh, uh, a bit i think um here and there um, but what's the general take on on just transition models, um, you know, similar to what we'd have for oil and gas industries um, to provide a governmental framework for moving uh, economics elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, good question. I, I, I think Christine's touched on a lot of a lot of good stuff around uh, around that, you know, like. Um, not not relying on that sort of volume based uh, production model. Um, you know where it's where it's high output and and obviously a lot of these sort of quite wasteful products or inputs I should say that go into producing the products. Um, so you know shifting to a different kind of product I guess is one thing, but then you know like you um, talk, just talked about Christine around people walking off their farms and and that kind of stuff if they become you know not like if, if the industry itself in large parts becomes not that not viable anymore that's obviously not something that we want to see you know we don't want that kind of hurt uh being put on people um and so you know i think like these are really important conversations to to try and answer some of those questions you know how, how like if if parts of the industry or, or ways of doing things you know are no longer viable where where do those people go or, or how do they produce differently um and yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, I guess no, no sort of easy answer to that, but I, I guess, you know, a just transition for me anyway, my interpretation of it is it's all about acknowledging that there has to be a transition, you know, and making it equitable and, and just, and, and so it's not the people that have, have been working hard and doing their best with the model that surrounds them, the, the, the burden and, and the kind of um, the consequences of, of that model don't fall on them you know that that they uh don't suffer because of it um and you know that actually that goes for people outside uh of of the you know you know whether it's, if we're talking about agriculture the, of the agricultural sector and, and other people where you know if, if we're talking about um prices getting put on emissions for example uh you know that that doesn't just increase the costs for the people on the lowest incomes you know and and for for the things that they really rely upon day-to-day -day in terms of energy and putting petrol in their car to get to work, you know, to their low-paid job. Those sure. people aren't the people that, you know, um, should be paying for this. It should be the, 
the people at the top that are, have been creaming it from the system for the last years know, plus you decades. Know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, you think about Teo Spearing when he was the, um, the boss of Fonterra, you know, he's getting paid like $7 million a year. I don't want to think about him. <laughs> <laughs> no, no well, he's gone now, but, you know, still, it's like that, that inverse um, sort of benefit. And, mm. and interestingly, I think, you know, Fonterra recognised that that mass output, you know, this you know, they, they were among the worst um, sort of neo-colonial forces because they'd set up these mega dairy farms in South America and in China and, you know, 40,000 cows in some of these farms. And, um, you know, they've, they hit, hit a crunch and they've realised that that model is not a viable model. So, you know, mm. they, the farms still exist that they, they set up, but, um, but they are now looking at um, more premium products rather than sort of this bulk um, mass-produced stuff um, but yeah they, they obviously have a role to play in supporting that transition that that is just and um, at the moment um, you know the farmers will be suffering from uh, from the impacts of climate change so you know you think about those storms in the South Island that came down and, and did all this untold damage and so they're carrying the consequences of this so it's like adapt now or suffer later or actually suffer now and adapt i I think one of the that's one of the the major issues right is that the people making the decisions aren't directly affected by them um it's it is the people on the ground and that's what's so heartbreaking about that the the entire story um of agriculture in new zealand is that uh, a bunch of people being set up as dupes essentially like doing lots of hard work like um Many started like, you know, um, salt of the earth uh, kind of stuff, or at least that's the perception, right? Um, colonial um, land theft aside, um, yeah. you know, these are, these are really difficult jobs, um, but they're just mannequins for the people sitting in, in the director's chair at Fonterra or wherever else, or at least fertilizers company. Um, yeah. They're going to take the full force of, or the full weight of uh, the consequences. And it's, yeah, I, I I have a real issue whenever we're, whenever the narrative begins to individualize them um, as somehow being at fault, and you know you got a lot of that around the groundswell process and stuff. You know there are issues with those, but these people have been put in a position which is totally untenable, um, and they don't have much control um, over the things that are happening to them. Yeah, it's well, real. Yeah. One thing that I guess gives me a bit of hope, and maybe we'll come to you shortly, Christine, to sort of uh, wrap us up um, with a with a final word on this. Um, you know, you talked about our agricultural transition, um, Kyle, and I think you spoke about it earlier on, Christine, in terms of transitioning to dairy and and away from some of those other things. And that was that was an economic transition, right? Out of necessity, you know, the world was changing around us, and and you know, so 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 our our products change, but actually not, not just at a kind of individual level, you know, there was a lot of government involvement. Um, obviously some of those decisions were uh, really, uh, you know, consequential in, in a bad way for a lot of those, um, a lot of the industries. But I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, is that those things can bring about a lot of really kind of rapid, you know, rapid transformation in the, you know, in the economy and in the, in the sort of systems that we set up. So, does that kind of give you um, some hope that you know, even if we don't know exactly 
you know, what it's going to look like right now, uh, that, that some of these things will prompt the change that we need? Yeah, well, it's certainly not tenable for it to continue the way it is. It's not sustainable, um, you know, either at a local level or um, at a global level. So something's going to give. You know, we are always in a state of constant flux. Um, this is a process, an ongoing evolution of our relationship with, um, you know, animals, with each other, with the land, with the climate and with knowledge and, and with finance, you know, so even the changes in the financial sector um, in recent decades have been part of this. And, you know, so some of it's structural, some of it's individuals responding to those structures, some of it's, you know, civil society out there um, providing preconditions for change. And um, it is a milieu. And um, our sense, our, um, our role in Greenpeace Aotearoa is to make sense of that milieu and to expose the murky um, and unpalatable consequences of the way um, these things are expressed. And, um, you know, with, with that, I, I feel empowered. You know, um, it, it's a really important position. Um, you know, it's a big responsibility to uh, try and, help shape the world for the better but we all have a role in that and um, for some of us it's just as consumers for others of us um, wherever we sit um, you know it's as leaders or thought shapers or um, activists and none of those roles are to be underestimated um, you know we we have a really important contribution to make no matter where we sit and no matter how empowered or not we might be um, but it's important that we do speak truth to power, that we keep on this path of making the world better um, because otherwise it's going to be a hell of a lot worse. And, uh, you know, that, that's just not tenable. We've got to keep going. We've got to keep um, believing and motivating and um, being courageous. Yeah, thanks so much, Christine. That's that's a, I think it's a really good note to finish on, actually, a hopeful note. Um, yeah, I just want to say thanks so much. It's been a really insightful conversation um, for me and, you know, a lot of good detail, but also some really, really important kind of messages, uh, more sort of high-level messages about what all the politics and the strategy and and the um, all that kind of stuff, you know, um, yeah, has, has, has you know, what we need to do around that, I guess. Um, so, Thanks so much and um, really appreciate the work that Greenpeace is doing on this. Thanks. Yeah, it was an awesome opportunity for me too and really nice to meet you both. It was a really great, um, you know, I really enjoyed talking politics with people that <laughs> politics. So, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you so much, Christine. And, and thanks for um, leading this one, Paul. Uh, just to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Uh, give us a share if you want to spread the word about what's happening in the uh, climate space um, and, and with our agriculture industry. Uh, give us a retweet or share us on Facebook or wherever else you uh, might have to do that. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass up full?
nationalism. You don't hate your nation. You hate. 